Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Welcome back to another edition of Tent Talks, where we talk to people who are living out and helping us engage with renewing the social and political imagination. And as you know, I'm a theologian, but I love talking to people who are not working in churchy theological environments, but are working out there in other aspects of the world, in the real world, as it were. And so with that in mind, I am so happy to welcome Dr. Ellie Riley. Ellie is a clinical psychologist. And when I was looking for ways to think about how do we deal with the anxiety, the high levels of panic and conspiracy theory and stress that we see. If you live in the UK, we've been feeling it since Brexit. If you live in America or the rest of the world, you've been feeling it since 2016 and the the hyper-partisan world. And now we have coronavirus and COVID and we have Black Lives Matter. And it is essentially an extraordinarily highly stressful time to live and I wanted to talk to somebody who was a professional at helping people deal with anxiety. And I wanted to see what her professional uh, insight might be as to what we're facing today. So, Ellie, thank you for joining us on Tent Theology. It's a pleasure to be with you, Stephen. Now, first of all, Ellie, uh, a clinical psychologist. I got that right. Is that right? That's right. Yes, that's correct. Okay. But I also saw that you're a psychotherapist when well, I did my research. Um, Yes. So I think there are lots of um, there's lots of overlap between psychotherapy, psychology, counselling. They're all sort of in the same broad basket, but people call themselves different things and have different kinds of trainings. But my primary training is as a clinical psychologist. So, Ellie, if we were uh, at, a, at a party and we're having we're, we're hovering over the drinks table and we're exchanging awkward chit chat, because we don't know each other. And you said you're a clinical psychologist and I, and I'm, I'm trying to be polite and I'm like, Ooh, tell me, tell What's me. That? What, what yes. is that? So well, what is your drink party explanation? So my drinks party explanation is, I suppose that I help people um, uh, who have um, mental health problems or um, life issues that they need a bit of help with. And my aim is to help them thrive and to find the best life and to make the best choices in life that they can and I use a variety of different strategies and techniques to help people accomplish that. Is there a particular school of thought or or um, well I, think I, I started out with um, cognitive behavior therapy which is what you, uh, your your listeners may have heard of um, because I was very cerebral in those days I was very focused on thinking and the intellect my yeah. parents and teachers and so I was very kind of academically inclined um, but after a while, I realized that neurologically speaking, that doesn't make too much sense because the bits of your brain that do um, uh, emotion um, mm. in general are not that interested in logic uh, and thinking. And they think more in pictures and stories. And so mm. I have started working in different kinds of ways. And I work a bit more in the body now. Um, I'm unusual as a psychologist. I'm very interested in physiology and how the body works. And uh, so I work a bit more with the body and I talk to people about diet and those sorts of things as well. So it's a bit of a mixture. <laughs> do you like do you like the language? I mean, I can't tell if you would uh, roll your eyes during our drinks party if I said, oh, so you're interested in the whole life or whole body? Exactly. Health? Yes. 
yes, exactly. Whole body health. What does a person need to thrive? And of course, that's not just psychological, that is biological and social and spiritual. There's a whole range of things um, that people need to thrive. So I try and give a nod to all of those areas as best I can. Yeah. So you mentioned your parents were teachers and that you went into CBT originally. Can you That's tell right. us a little bit about how you how you found this vocation or, or your journey into it? Well, um, I think I always um, I always was interested in mental health. Um, my parents were dealing with some mental health problems when I was a little girl. And so I was always interested in what's the backstory to that and how does that happen? Hmm. Um, and so I then went off and did a degree in psychology uh, and then progressed from there to clinical psychology. Um, so I sort of, yes, uh, and then I was a Christian as well. So obviously you want to do something meaningful in the world. And yeah. Um, yeah. it doesn't have to be a helping profession, of course. You know, working in a bread factory is just as good a vocation as being a nurse or a doctor or anything else, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but for yeah. me, it felt like it was quite a good match to my skills, my interests um, to go for psychology. And did you find, I mean, as you were, did you find that your church culture understood what you were doing or were they trying to channel you into other healing professions? My church were fairly hands off. Um, I think a few people were a bit uh, sceptical about the whole issue of sort of psychological therapies. Um, so I had a few negative comments about, you know, people just need to read their Bible more or and people were very negative about medications as well. Um, okay. But I kind of knew what direction the Lord was drawing me in. So that was fine. <laughs> I just got on with it. I mean, we're, we're far more interested in focusing on what is good rather than what has gone wrong. So how do you see your theology and your or your Christian life and your vocation? What benefits do you, does being a Christian bring to the table when you do clinical psychology? Well, I think um, obviously you, um, you start as a Christian with the viewpoint that everybody is made in the image of God. Um, each person is precious, valuable, and that God wants them to thrive in their life and to blossom and to develop and to grow as a person in the most wonderful and rich way. And so I think that's a fabulous starting point for doing therapy with people where you start from a position of unconditional acceptance and value and looking for how this person can really blossom and develop into their best self and their best life. To me, that sits very nicely alongside a, a Christian framework. I mean, it's like a, I remember a, a teacher of mine actually said uh, when I, he was a Christian teacher and he helped set the space that we were in. And he said, just so everyone knows, when I think of you, I only think good things. I'm only yes. thinking the best of you. Exactly. That uh, stuff, what an yes. interesting way to do not judge, right? Do not judge. And obviously people, as a psychologist, people do tell you mistakes and failures. Yeah. Um, but there's always a reason why people fall into mistakes and failures. And, um, you know, the compassion that you can feel that, that, you know, God feels for them when people get themselves in a mess. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's not their fault. Sometimes it is their fault. They've they've made silly choices. But yeah. the compassion yeah. and the acceptance and the lack of judgment is is very important. I heard this one. I'm going to run by you because it's so rare that I actually get to talk to a clinical psychologist. I heard somebody say, like, let's remember that most of what we just call sin is actually just responding to trauma. Exactly that. Yes, that's really what I was just saying, really, that um, yeah. 
many, many things are just responses and, and they're a person's best attempt at coping with something difficult that's happening. Which brings me perhaps to what sort of... Okay, it's not that hard to look at the world and see a lot of people responding in really bad ways to <laughs> the world right now, like anger, yeah. hatred, yes, hatred. fear, racism, yeah. Yeah. anti, like aggressive anti-intellectualism, aggressive, you know, uh, nationalism. Are these just sins that are actually traumas that people are working out? Well, I think it's both, isn't it? That um, clearly there are better ways of responding than those, but many people don't know that they have a choice or they don't know anything different. They don't really know what else could be another response. No. And I think um, if you have a Christian worldview and you understand that actually God is on the throne and he loves you and, you know, uh, this world is passing away. Um, this world is not the only world. Our citizenship is not primarily, as Christians, our citizenship is not British or American or European. Our right. citizenship right. is in heaven. So many of these things look a lot different when you um, are a child of God and when you know Jesus, then the perspective that you have on them is quite different, I think. But I think, you know, people in the world who don't know God, um, how, what else are they going to do? It's very difficult for them because, you know, they don't have those understandings and well i would say <laughs> this whole podcast started essentially because of the way that evangelicals are rushing to embrace mm -hmm. trump and all that he represents so uh -huh. these are people who are quite used to the language of citizenship being in the kingdom of god uh, and they themselves are some of the most enthusiastic you know partakers of some of these ills of the world that we're seeing how do you, I mean, I almost do, do wonder whether there is much of a difference between people who call themselves Christians and people who don't when it comes to their embrace of some of these activities that we're looking at. Well, I think what you've just said about Trump sort of in a way encapsulates the problem that um, you've kind of made a judgment about Trump of your own, okay. that he's bad and what he stands for is bad. Yeah. And the maybe the American evangelicals see something different. Yeah. Uh, and are responding to something different. And so this is the problem that we we can't quite see what they're seeing. Yeah. And they can't quite see what we're seeing. But humility asks us to assume that the other person knows something that we don't and that they've had a different experience than we've had. Yeah. And that they're not necessarily bad and wicked and evil or bigoted or stupid. Yeah. Um, we saw all that rhetoric around Brexit, didn't we? Yes. Um, on both sides, I used to say, both sides were equally yeah. virulent. But I think, you know, putting people and movements into boxes, I don't think that's really how it, I don't think that's productive. Is it inevitable? <laughs> <laughs> is, it human, is, is it a human thing? I mean, I don't, has any human ever not eventually put somebody else in a box? Well, indeed, we have to do it to make sense of the world. Um, but you have to hold those boxes a bit lightly, don't yeah, you? Yeah, right. And think, I might be wrong. And these are the people, they may know something that I don't know, or they may see something, they may have a different perspective that is equally valid as the perspective I've got. Um, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so I think there's, there's there's been a lot of polarising because, you know, like, I'm no great fan of Trump's myself, particularly, but I don't think he's the devil incarnate either. Yeah, right. 
Uh, so and clearly um in some ways in some ways he's doing better than previous presidents he hasn't bothered to start a, an international war as far as i can tell yeah so, he hasn't dropped no. a bomb a nuclear bomb he on hasn't anyone. dropped a bomb anybody um so you know great good for him um there are clearly americans who are supporting him are, are responding to a situation that we don't really live in yeah and they're uh, seeing something in him that that speaks to their needs so whether whether that's a good thing or a bad thing i don't know um i don't know enough about american politics um but i think just you know trump bad you know joe biden good that that's not going to work is it yeah life's more complicated than that and the same is the same with brexit it's the same with black lives matter but thing the world is a lot more complicated than you think and so you can't put people into black and white boxes or you shouldn't it that doesn't make sense and it doesn't help what is happening to us? Like, so let's use me as my as the example. Forget, forget other people. What is happening to me physiologically, psychologically? When I, I I don't know, I'll post some innocuous thing on Facebook, and then I'll get a reply, and it will be from somebody who's like, "I disagree with you. I think you know, nationalism is really good, and you know, they'll basically disagree with anything that I stand for." Right? Yeah, sure. Now I will. I will lay awake at night thinking about that comment. Like I will oh, feel very yeah. kind of personally attacked. Personally attacked by it, yes. Yeah. So what is happening to me? So what's happening to you is obviously, you know, we interpret a disagreement or you are interpreting a disagreement as a sort of a, it's not quite a physical fight, but it's a kind of a fight, isn't it? Yeah. We're having yeah. a tussle. And so yeah. your fight flight, your stress, your alarm mechanism is getting triggered. And so you're going into that alarm reaction in your body, which is um, your stress hormones will go up, your cortisol level will rise, um, your blood pressure will go up. It'll be quite difficult to stop thinking about it because your brain thinks it's an emergency and wants to focus on sorting out the emergency. Do I think that I'm about to lose my existence? Like, Is it a kind of a survival mechanism? Well, um it can be a sort of existential survival if you feel that your sense of self is being attacked. That's quite unpleasant for people. We don't like that at all. And that's quite threatening to us because obviously, you know, that physically you're not really at risk from someone on Facebook. Yeah. But because we're social beings, we, we care very deeply what other people think of us and we want to be in harmony and agreement. That's part of what makes us human mm. and so when that's challenged um, we do get a very powerful alarm response most people do um, but it's really not very good for you Stephen okay <laughs> as well as unpleasant so um, what's it going to so do to me if I stay on Facebook well if you stay on Facebook you're going to be in a state of stress activation yes. constantly yes. potentially and then over, you know it takes years but over years you're going to end up with potentially with high blood pressure and uh, health problems and feeling miserable and uh, and being a bit crabby. Do you notice you're a bit crabby and irritable when you get like that? Absolutely. And when you haven't, haven't had a night's sleep, so you start to ruin the relation, the face to face relationships, yeah. which are yeah. real relationships. You start to spoil those for the sake of some argument on Facebook. Now, why don't I feel this? Now, I will feel a higher level of like existential <laughs> attack from an mm -hmm. anonymous person on Facebook than I will feel with my friend in the pub. 
mm-hmm. who will say, think, oh, yeah, Trump's not oh, so bad. Stephen, come on, Trump's not so bad yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, so well, what's the difference? Well, I think partly it's because you, you you can't have that to and fro conversation with a stranger on Facebook, can yeah, you? Yeah. So you can't get any kind of resolution. And usually it doesn't end well if you if you start a debate on Facebook no. or on YouTube or whatever. There are a few people um, who will engage on an honest level and who, who want to have a, a proper debate and learn something. But most people are just want to attack you. So um, my... I don't use Facebook. I, I go on YouTube. So my policy is that if people respond in an aggressive way, I don't respond to them at all. Yeah. Um, because we're not going to have anything productive to say to each other. Um, but if people seem like they're genuinely are curious about my point of view, or they've, you know, they've got a bit of openness to talk about things in a more measured kind of way, then I sometimes will engage in in an interchange. But otherwise, I just don't go there because, as you say, it does your head in, doesn't it? Well, I mean, as much as I feel personally attacked, I'm also aware that we're using things like Facebook to project our personality out there into the world as well, right? That's right, right. yes. So it's kind of like my whole personality is being vulnerable out there in the world. Yes. So, and I think as a Christian, the other thing that's important to do is to, you know, if someone does attack you, is to go to the Lord and, you know, get quiet before the Lord and say, look, Lord, you know, this person has said this about me, that I'm a bigot or I'm this or I'm that. Mm. Is that true? Mm. And how do you see me? Yeah. Um, yeah. In the end, his opinion is the only one that matters. So my suggestion is to get quiet before the Lord and ask him how he sees you and to show show, show you how, how does he see you. Um, and as we said, every thought he has towards you is a good one, mm. even with mistakes and failures it's all good. I think that's the answer to for Christians to personal attacks. It's like, who cares what anybody else says? What does what yeah. does Jesus think of me? And what and physically, you you, you talked about heightened stress, cortisol. Um, physically, what can we be doing as while we're telling ourselves, while we're asking, what does Jesus? What do you think of me? What else? Yes. What else can you do for your body to calm down? Mm. So um, many, many things. So exercise is really important. And by exercise, I don't mean going to the gym. I mean, just moving your body in any way. So it could be gardening or housework or dancing or walking, anything like that. And it's one of the pitfalls of modern life is that we just don't move enough for good mental health. So activity is really important. Stimulating the vagus nerve. Um, calms you down and a good way of doing that is humming or singing okay and again it's something that people don't do very much of in the modern world and the in the old days people would gather around in, in an evening and sing together yeah as a family yeah. or yeah but people don't do that so as christians we well we used to sing at church <laughs> we can't sing at church anymore so singing is a very soothing thing to do um yeah tell me more and, the vagus, what is the vagus nerve yeah, so the vagus nerve is a very long and complicated nerve. And if you stimulate it, it tends to switch on the calm you down part of the nervous system. Okay. So we want more vagal stimulation in our lives, not less. And so there's a, a, a bunch of different ways to stimulate it. So exposure to cold water stimulates it. So if you can have a cold bath, that works. But I can't persuade many people to have cold baths, unfortunately. So um, <laughs> people always scream when I suggest a cold bath. <laughs> I knew I had a friend who had suffered some uh, some intense trauma in her life. And one of the things she did was when, whenever the memory came back, she would she would put her hands under running cold water. 
Yes, absolutely. That's an excellent idea. And, you know, she said that it was the Lord that she, in prayer, she was just reminded to do that. Really, to do that. Yes, that works very, very well. Isn't that interesting? In fact, I, I used to work with some aromatherapists and they would do that very same thing after massaging a person, particularly if the person was very sick yeah. or very um, upset. Yeah. They would do it as a kind of calm down thing after the session. Mm. <laughs> so I should sit with my feet in a tub of cold water while while on Facebook. How about that? Well, how about giving up Facebook? I, do you know, Ellie? I I already have basically. <laughs> I I really I actually basically already have. It just is not making my life better, and it's only reminding me of things that I can't do anything about. So exactly, and I think what you've just said you just said two things that are really important. One is that you've realized it doesn't make your life any better. And in fact, it makes your life worse. Yeah. So my recommendation is always, if you can come off social media or severely, severely limit exposure. Yeah. And the other thing that you just said that is super important is things that you can't do anything about. Mm. That those things are fruitless, really, to think about and to engage with. And so um, if you think about um, what what Paul says in Philippians, he says, you know, whatever things are true and noble and, you know, mm -hmm. worthy and pure and good, think about those things, meditate on those things. Yeah. But no, in the modern world, we decide to meditate on whatever is scary and depressing and miserable and corrupt and bad, don't we? That's what we spend our time thinking about. Is it sort of addictive? I almost find it like... It, it's sort of misery porn. I call it misery porn. Yeah. Like the headlines, the, you know, the... Mm. Yes. The, the, you yeah. know, you won't believe the late what the latest politician the latest said. And, yeah. What's Trump done now? That yes. kind of thing, you know, and, and, and the headlines about like almost gleefully how bad things are getting. How bad things are. Yeah. So I, I say I think um, just try and limit exposure. Humans are not really designed for constant exposure to trauma and misery. No. So what happens physiologically when we uh, reflect on what is right and true and noble? Oh, everything calms down, Stephen, and everything goes better. Your digestion switches on and you digest your food better. You feel better. You sleep better. Wow. Everything's better. It's funnily enough. God's advice is good advice. Amazing. Yes. So, you know, obviously, you know, you need to watch enough news to keep ahead of abreast of, you know, what's going on in the world. But I think it can be get quite addictive constantly checking what's happened next on the news feed. And, you know, I, I think probably about twice a week is enough for news, really. Yeah. And if you know that if you realize that you're starting to get dysregulated, then just stop. So a, a few weeks ago, I realized that the covid yeah. coverage um, on the BBC was dysregulating my physiology. So I just stopped watching for a few weeks. Tell me more about dysregulated. That's a technical term I don't think I've heard before. Well, it's no, it's just my term for like, I started to feel like my body was getting upset and I could feel myself getting tense and my breathing would go okay. weird and I'd be angry and irritable and everything was going a bit chaotic in myself. Yeah. Dysregulated, yes. Um, so, you know, another word is just upset, I suppose. <laughs> I was like, and, 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 and it has no fruitful end to it. There wasn't help, you know, it doesn't help, does it, to get upset. Yeah. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to switch that off for a while. Okay, I understand not seeking out news stories and ideas that we can have nothing about. But we do live in an age in which lockdown, coronavirus is a real thing in our lives. And we really do live in an era of Brexit. And we really do live in an era of nationalist presidents. So what happens when we are forced to move in? in worlds in which we have no control over the bigger picture what 
what can we be doing about that psychologically in a healthy way? Well, psychologically, I think the thing is to try and find the thing in your life, the things in your life that you can control. Right. And so ask the Lord, ask the Lord, what are the things that he's he's mandated you to do? Yeah, right. You know, um, I forget, I think it might be in Ephesians too. It says that um, we're each a work of art created to do good works that God prepared in advance for us. Right. So ask the Lord in this situation, what are the good works that you have mandated for my life and do those? Yeah. And then you'll find there's a sense of satisfaction and a sense of things are not entirely out of control. But for the rest of it, for the things that really are out of control, you've got to trust God and say, OK, I don't know, Lord, I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I trust you and I'm going to rely on you. Mm. And I think that's all you can do. I mean, I guess I noticed that kind of messianic delusion that we have, which we think just because I've noticed that something is wrong in the world, that doesn't mean it's your job to fix it. Exactly that. And, and now that we know we can discover everything that's going wrong in the world, practically, of course, you can't possibly deal with all, everything that's happening. And, and so when people are going back to, for instance, to Trump, I'm like, well, Trump's in America. Our job is for most of us who live in, you know, those who live in England, our job is here in England. That's our primary sphere of influence. How about getting on and making England better and let the Americans sort out Trump? Yeah, yeah. You know, to make, there's nothing you can do about him or whether he'll get re-elected again. Um, how about we focus on what's going on here? Or the person right in front of you. Exactly. And I think many times if you ask the Lord what he's wanting you to do, you'll find that he tells you some person that you already know that needs some help. Yeah. Um, it's not highfalutin political stuff. It's like, why don't you offer to do a bit of gardening yeah. for that elderly person across the road or, mm. you know, those sorts of things. I think most of us make more difference in life on that kind of level i was once um encouraged by somebody i, th I think it was somebody i saw on facebook to be perfectly frank mm -hmm. oh, right, thing. Yeah. but um you know and the idea was like yeah. all right fine we know as followers of jesus we are supposed to uh, prioritize the poor care for the poor so the poor is a huge you know vague and abstract problem but every single person knows somebody who is you know, there is the somebody, everybody knows somebody who's the poorest person they know. I know, yes. And I just thought, oh, okay, I can't solve the poor, capital T, capital P, but I can ask the Holy Spirit, remind me of the poorest person I know and what can I do for them? Yeah. Exactly that. And I also think, you know, ask the Lord, you know, because many of the poorest people in the world are not people we know personally in England or in, yeah, in America. Exactly. They're in other countries. Yeah. Um, but you can't fix all of those things. So I think the thing is to ask the Lord to give you either a location or a group or an issue that is your mandate. Um, so for me, um, I find it utterly horrifying that people can go blind for the sake of a few, not getting a few antibiotics. So one of the charities that I support is um, Christian uh, Mission for the Blind. Um, that's the one I've chosen to put my support in and there are many other good ones but that's the one that grabs my heart and other people have other things like water aid or trees or whatever it is um but I, you've got to pick one thing and then you know do one thing rather than feeling overwhelmed by everything well it also seems so human like in a fundamentally good way is that we are just limited beings we aren't gods we can't do everything we can't do everything and nor should we try because we'll make ourselves very ill so and but there is a 
it, it takes the edge off the awareness of suffering if you feel that you can do something about it, yes. whether that's doing something practical or whether it's intercession. Of course, many people have a, a vocation for intercession. Yes. Um, so, but just seeing suffering and not doing anything and feeling helpless is the worst of all worlds. It's utterly fruitless. So, um, yeah. I think the thing is follow the Lord's lead into what He shows you personally. And for some people, that will be something more sort of kind of dealing with the system. It might be that God will tell you to go into politics or to join a lobby group. Um, but for many people, those things are not going to be part mm-hmm. of what God says. It'll be the little things of you know, making meals for a sick neighbor or that sort of thing. Which is part of reimagining what we, our politics and our social life as well. Like where we, we don't have to think that all solutions to everything must be done through government, through Westminster. or Absolutely. Or... I think that is one of the, um, the dangers of the welfare state, although it's wonderful in many ways. Yeah. The danger is that people think, oh, well, the government should, should do everything. And actually the government aren't very good at doing things yeah. <laughs> in yeah. general a, and an inefficient service provider at best inefficient uh, and or contra- and or controlling yeah. which is not great yeah. um so i think small charities and and personal individual acts of of you know philanthropy i think are a lovely addition to the welfare state yeah but i think it would be i mean you can see what happened in communism when the state tries to do everything for right. you, it wasn't a very happy or a very productive society. And it's inhuman because it's too abstract and too big. Too abstract. And people people are designed to respond to people, not to systems and governments. Yeah. We, we're yeah. essentially person to person. So small groups and individuals is, is where we feel comfortable. How would you, I often, because I do a lot of work with organizations helping them be healthy. Um, how would you, notice or tell when a group has got too big what are some of your warning signs for institutions that have got too big too big oh um well what i know as a psychologist is that in general people have only got the capacity to engage with probably about 100 meaningfully with about 150 other individuals maybe up to about 300 and that used to be the size of a village that would be a kind of typical an anglican parish parish, yes exactly so um and so my view is that once things go much beyond that then you're into unknown territory what does meaningful engagement mean when you said well in the sense that you know you can have three thousand friends on facebook can't you right but they're not three thousand actual friends are they (laughs) (laughs) because you know there's only 24 hours in the day and you've only got so much time energy and money to actually be friends or to really know know people yeah. Oh, yeah. so 150 to 300 is about the limit for most of us it's interesting how that hasn't really changed from no, no. technology hasn't changed that aspect of human no. culture well no that's right because we've still got just got one brain and, and one lot of 24 hours and only a certain amount of emotional energy and you know physical energy i mean have i was i correct in my introductions talking about how the anxiety levels seem to have arisen do you, do you think that that's true in your professional opinion i don't know i mean certainly people are more anxious i think than they were 50 years ago okay. and I think there's lots of theories about why that might be um i think we've lost many of the things many of the natural ways of living that sustain good mental health like walking every day like getting exposure to sunlight um, being out in nature dealing with animals 
living in small communities, doing singing and dancing, yeah. you know, belonging yeah. to the church, having a spiritual connection. All these things have disappeared, even in my lifetime, I remember. Oh, and do you remember the Sabbath rest? Yeah. Do you remember the Sabbath rest? How old are you? Holy. Ah, I'm 44. Yes, I do know this. So do you remember when Sundays were sort of a bit boring, but all the grown-ups would just like lie on the sofa and snooze? Yes. So so I think that's a big loss that we haven't really noticed. Um, We've gone 24-7. Yes. So I think, you know, it's difficult to tell why people are more anxious, but I think it's probably multifactorial. And also diet, people's diets are not very good. Mm And um, the, the the push towards um, eating less meat, I don't think, is a good thing mm-hmm. for mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, your brain's made of cholesterol, and so having low cholesterol is not a good plan for mental health. Yeah. And the fish oils are very important as well. Um, but I do think that our modern generation, um, we would all benefit from reading a little bit of history, really, um, because, you know, we think we've got this most catastrophic world that we live in, but... <laughs> If I think back to what my grandma was dealing with 100 years ago, you know, they just had the Great War. There weren't many husbands around. Loads of people had just died of the Spanish flu. We didn't have any votes. Um, There was always the ever-present risk of TB. Um, My other grandma was um, suffering from rickets because of malnutrition. Uh, And if things went wrong, you'd end up in the workhouse separated from all your family. So I'm like, do you know, is that world's more stressful than ours? And I'm like, yes, yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? And then if you look back, that, so that's even just within, you know, my, not my memory, but within sort of, I can t- reach out and touch it from personal experience from my grandmas. And then if you go back to, um, if you go back to 1932, do you know about the Holodomor? No, tell me. So it was a big um, man-made famine in the Ukraine. Oh, yeah. So Stalin requisitioned the grain and um, several million Ukrainians died in a couple of years so at the height of the Holodomor 25,000 people were dying a day of starvation and then if you go back a few centuries we had the Black Death and a third of the population and then they had a little ice age when all the crops failed because climate suddenly changed yeah Sound familiar (laughs) so um, so when uh, and if you think about despots um, you know Mr. Trump doesn't begin to compare to some of the medieval despots yeah. or, you yeah. know, if I don't know what you whether you know about the Assyrians, what they used to do to I people. I do, yes, I do. <laughs> oh, yes, they used to be dreadful, you know, skinning people alive and so forth. So um, when people say, oh, the modern world's so stressful, I'm like, mm, I don't know, actually. Is it most? I don't know. Clearly, there are, things are stressful, but I'm not sure whether it's worse whether than... Whether it's more. We certainly know about everybody's individual... We have more yeah. access to individual lives, or at least what we they we choose to access, tell us about themselves. We have more access to misery than we used to, true. maybe. But the, but the misery itself might not be that. Well, I'm not sure whether we've really got, I mean, people, there's been illnesses, there's been climate change, there's been financial crashes, there's been difficulties, you know, adjustments of national sovereignty. That's just life, isn't it? Um, so I think we've got to get a little bit of a grip on ourselves rather than thinking we're this poor stressed out generation and poor us isn't it dreadful yeah, right. no yeah. one's ever had to deal with what we have to deal with that's not true is it <laughs> You're absolutely right although you i'll give you this tip for free uh, if you want to retire well why don't you why don't you start to think about coronavirus generation counseling.com or something like that <laughs> and, and because there's going to be a, a whole generation of people who who are going to blame corona for their 
Everything that goes wrong in life will be because they missed six months of school. Or yeah, something. exactly. But you know, I you know start thinking about that now and get ready for them when they show up in 20, 15 years, twenty years. <laughs> I think that's right. But I do think Corona has given us a a wonderful reset. So I, clearly, I feel very sorry for the people who are struggling and um, people who are losing jobs and things. That's you know, I'm not yeah. making light of that. Um, but I do think that in another way, it's given us a bit of a reset button of how do we do life, what's important. So there is something to be gained from reflecting on the whole COVID situation. Yeah. And, you know, I'm hoping that people won't be rushing about commuting and rushing to their offices quite as much in the future and that sort of thing. Is there any other uh, any other life tips you could give to contemplate the reset button slowly being lifted? Well, I think the Sabbath rest actually might be a big one. Um, I think we're, we're designed for more rest than we're taking. And um, even Christians don't really have a Sabbath rest, do they? Um, I was looking I was looking at some of these stuff about um, about the Sabbath rest. And, you know, the Sabbath day's journey, you're only allowed to travel so far. And I think it's, I forget how far it is, but it's not very, do you no, know how far it is? Yeah. It's not very far. It's probably less than tw- a 20 minute walk, yeah. something like that. And um, we certainly all do a lot of traveling on Sundays, even Christians, don't we? We we might be having a lovely day out, but it's still rushing about. It's not interesting. Um, So I think that might be something that we're really missing out on. I mean, finding ways to slow down life. Deliberately inefficient things to do. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, doing things slowly, things like cooking your own food rather than just ready meals and growing some food. And uh, Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, this is not it's not rocket science, really. I, I would say, no, go back to how people lived in the past and then you'll discover what is more of a natural yeah. human life. Most people lived in villages. Most people worked on the land. Yeah. Yeah. So they were out and about in the sunshine. So it was hard work um, that people lived in little communities. Yeah, they worked hard, but they had lots of holidays as well. They'd have lots of days off. So in the medieval times, people would have every Sunday off, but they had some somewhere around about 80 Kind of religious holidays so they had loads of days off yeah that's so, true a lot of yeah. rest was built into the baked into the system that's true yeah exactly uh, and it was true rest um because we don't really get even when we've got a day off as i say we're still rushing around or we're goggling at screens and we're looking at all the dreadful things that are happening on the other side of the world on our screens which isn't resting that's not resting for your brain that's working so i think um brilliant I think we've got to rethink and that there's a really good book by um, John Mark Comer, I think he's called, who talks about the. Is that the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry? Is that his book? It might be that one. I can't remember now. But yes, anyway, there's some there are some good books about it, aren't there? What other resources can you recommend, Ellie? Um, either either by yourself or from your uh, from your firm or, or for others. What, what else would you recommend to people? Well, I think um, when COVID is over. Try and put some singing, some dancing, some laughing mm. into your life. Have some fun. Make sure to be physically active. And I think contact with nature and with animals is something that's missing for many people. So deliberately find a way to have some contacts with the green spaces yeah. and with animals. Those people benefit very greatly from that. But yeah, human contact is the big one for humans. We're made for relationship, and but we're made for happy relationships, not stressed relationships. So in whatever way you can find a group of people who love you and you love them and really connect with them, whether that's a church or whether it's it can be another group. And don't mistake 
social media contacts for friends <laughs> those re- things are really physiologically those things really are really are. different um, one of the things that happens with face-to-face contact is that you get eye contact and that sets off a whole hormonal cascade that is jolly good for you and so if you don't get that which you don't online um then it's really a very fake human contact and the other thing that happens when you're when you see someone in person is that each body everyone has an electromagnetic field that their Mm. body generates and the largest electromagnetic field is around the heart and it projects out Mm. from the body and so when you're face to face with someone your heart fields are interacting with each other and that is very good for us and so even seeing people on zoom isn't quite as good as in person i don't know whether your listeners have noticed that when you see people on zoom it's better than nothing but it's not quite the same as seeing people face to face and there is a physiologically there's there are reasons for that that's amazing yeah i mean we are noticing the lack of hugs for example the lack of ability to hug each other exactly that lack of hugs and touching yes exactly that how would we get some of that i mean would animals would, would, would contact with animals yes Animals are great. Have you noticed how people love to stroke and hug their dogs? Yes. And so there's been a study um, um, where they looked at people who had heart attacks and they compared people who'd either got cats or dogs versus people who didn't have a pet in the house. And they Mm -hmm. found that if you had a cat or a dog, you're twice as likely to be alive a a year later after a heart attack if you have a pet. Wow. So that's wow, isn't it? And let me tell you also about a study they did on um, nature. So they took people who'd had gallbladder operations. So Mm -hmm. and they had three groups. One group um, got a view from their hospital ward of a wall. Another group got a view of some trees. And the third group got the wall. um, But they got a picture of trees in the ward. And they found that the people who got the view of the trees did much, much better, had fewer infections, recovered much better than the people who got Mm -hmm. the view of the wall. But even the picture of trees had a bit of an effect. So um, that the thing about contact with nature is very, very important for our well-being and our physiology. But at a pinch, even a picture will do something or a house plant, you know, those things. So all these things are more important than you think, all these natural, natural issues. Is it because it's somehow reminding us that we are part of a world bigger than us like we're connected to something bigger than ourselves i think it might actually be i'm sure it does that too but i think physiologically it does stuff that we don't quite know about yet yeah it's going back to what i said about the body that you know as christians the body is the body is not nothing you know in greek thinking, the body was nothing but in hebrew thinking the body is important and god has made us to be engaged with the world and to yeah and and we don't do well if we don't engage with these natural things that that God has created for us. Which is why theologically I always get so wary of, of the sort of Christian thinking that's like, Oh, your body is just a space suit that your soul is in. And the whole point is for your body to disappear and your soul to leave your body. I'm like, no, the body is actually, it is you. you, And that, and that is how you are the hands of Jesus. If you haven't got a body. That is incarnation. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So incarnation is an important theological. Yeah point no. isn't it yes and, and um, surprise surprise it actually fits with human science and psychology exactly and that physiology. yes yes the Imagine incarnation that. the incarnation is really important that god god does not despise matter and in fact inhabits matter yeah imagine that mm, yeah. Uh, dr riley where can people go 
if they were interested in in uh, in your services or in in the practice that you're part of, is there anywhere you can direct our listeners? Yeah. So, well, I would advise people first of all to um, go and do some of these other things. But if you feel like you've got you're struggling, then um, I do work at a practice called Psychology Sussex, which is in the Drive in Hove, and we're a group of um, different uh, mental health professionals. So there's a whole whole bunch of us who do different things and specialize in different areas so if people are looking for help um then you know can call call the administrator and um he will try and direct you to whoever is the expert in whatever you want to deal with whether that's me or someone else i know that for electromagnetic reasons heart to heart is better but do you do online do you see yes yes of course we're doing online sessions now as well as um right yeah Yeah, that's right Yeah. Yes, it is plan B, but at least there is a plan, isn't there? There the is Zoom a plan. Stuff. Yes, it, yes. Thank we. I thank God for Zoom because you know if this if if COVID had happened ten years ago, we'd have all been stuffed, wouldn't we? It would have been much more difficult to function. So, uh, so psychology Sussex. Psychology Sussex, it's called. Yes, and on that note of thankfulness, that's the other thing is try and be really thankful for everything in your life. Focus on all the wonderful things that we do have. Um, that's really important. Uh, for well-being to really notice and appreciate all the good things that you do have and it's not just pie in the sky thinking this really does have an effect on your it really does have an effect your digestion, your, your, digestion your physiology your blood pressure yes thankfulness yeah. there's lots of research on thankfulness now yes it's not just christians saying be thankful but clearly god tells us to be thankful in all circumstances and that he's right <laughs> it's good for us and it's not just delusional. In fact, no. you're almost the other way. If you're never thankful and you're always just yeah. looking at the horrors yeah. in the world, then yeah. you are living in a delusion. Indeed, yes. And most of us in the West, we lived the lives of kings and queens compared to most people in human yeah. history. Yeah. You know, yeah, we've yeah, really yeah. got it got it good. Yeah. And yeah. even those of us who are poor, I know I know people struggle, but um statistically we've won the lottery ticket we have indeed yes that's right yeah 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 yeah. well ellie dr riley thank you so much for joining us thank you for thank you for the conversation Stephen. it's been fun so i absolutely loved it now i need to go and find a dog or a cat a dog (laughs) or a cat and uh, unsigned from facebook (laughs) i will i promise i've got my doctor's orders i promise i will not yes well thank you very much okay well thank uh, you Stephen. perhaps Perhaps, um, depending on how uh, the the world uh, goes in the next few months with elections and things looming, perhaps we'll have you come back again one day. Yes, we can talk some more. Yes. DLC. Yes. yes. (laughs) Well, I've so appreciated uh, and really respect the the time that you took to give us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And blessings to all your listeners as well. So God bless you. Bye, Stephen. Bye. To further support the show, Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.